This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Andrea Barrett will likely be a very recognizable name to you. She is the author of 10 books, including the National Book Award-winning Ship Fever and the Pulitzer Prize finalist Servants of the Map. She is one of the great chroniclers of humankind's relationship to nature. Many of her best-known works are linked by shared characters and families, and very often the bloodlines of those families parallel and are dwarfed by the great majestic lines of descendancy that mark the flora and fauna of our planet. Before eco-fiction was a term du jour, Andrea Barrett was writing fictions that illuminate how communities of people are interwoven into communities of ecosystems. In her stories, the domestic lives of ordinary people are treated with incredible care and grace, and always with attention to how small events tragedies, and creations have ripple effects that can be traced through family lines and through the deep time of the planet. Andrea's latest, The Interconnected Stories, Natural History, ranges across half a century of wars and civil conflict while tracing the everyday lives of women who investigate and explore the natural world around them. These investigations are inseparable from the understandings Andrea Barrett's characters gain about their place in the social world, in their small upstate New York community, and as women living in eras that often discount them. Central to these stories is Henrietta, a science teacher, amateur lepidopterist, and key figure in the family line that will produce many of Andrea's most memorable characters. 
Captured in moments of her childhood, burgeoning adulthood, and as a singular figure on the family tree of her ancestry, Henrietta seeks her own path outside the expectations for a woman of her time and place. She takes joy from writing and reading, from sharing scientific observation and discovery with her students, and from the hidden and not-so-hidden worlds of plants and animals that compete for her attentions. Like all of Entra's work, these stories are exquisitely drawn pictures that give us the feel and texture of a moment in American life with language that allows us entry into historical periods that may predate us. The characters in these stories are firmly rooted in the specific societies and geographies around them, and their lives feel flush with the fullness of human experience. It is an honor to introduce Andrea Barrett to the show. Thanks, Chris. That's such a beautiful introduction. I hardly know what to say. I feel like you're writing about somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can say that your work has had a, a large impact on me for many years. And so this is a, a quite a special thing for me to get to talk to you today. Um, natural history is graced with a wonderful comprehensive family tree in the back that helps connect the families of Crooked Lake, New York. What calls you back to the same extended series of families from book to book? You know, it, it's really hard to answer that question. I think um, it started without my conscious decision. Um, just when I was writing so long ago, uh, when I began the voyage of the narwhal, I picked up a character from Ship Fever, and um, I thought it would be a companion novella. It turned into a big novel. All these other characters came to life. And then by the time I got to Servants of the Map, they were already all tied together without me doing it. Hmm. I don't think I was even conscious of it until I finished Servants of the Map. And um, then I, I realized how... I guess the word for it is really compulsion. Um, mm -hmm. I don't actually have control over it. it. It just generates itself. I'm glad to have it in one sense because it's a kind of uh, story generating machinery at this point. It's also a little scary though, because uh, even now when I go to write something new or I conceive a new character or a new story, a new novel, I always think, well, it's gonna be separate from this set of families. I'm gonna do something new. and. And then over not very long, a few days or a few weeks, um, my subconscious ties them into the family and I wake up thinking, oh, she's, you know, Joey's brother's aunt's mother. And then, <laughs> and, and then it's tied into the family tree. Um, and then there I am. It's, it's lovely to have something enter into the web like that. But it's also become quite complicated six books in because if I can't untie someone from the family tree, then that means everything in their life has to be tied into the family tree or at least into mm -hmm. the chronology. I have to uh, fit together everybody else's internal chronologies with the new person. I have to know, uh, sometimes they turn around and I, I can't even write the next sentence without thinking, but wait, you know, where was her aunt that month and who died when and what do they think about this? Um, it's, the, it's the oddest thing really. 
in the case of these stories, it is Henrietta Atkins, amateur scientist, scribe, and high school teacher that ties them together. I'll use your word. Um, what was the compulsion that made Henrietta um, end up at the center of the of of these stories? You know, she she came to life quite a long time ago as a, a very minor character in a story called The Investigators, which is in. Archangel, she just walked into the frame as a much older woman who was helping the, the little boy I thought of as being at the center of that story, investigate something. And there she was um, with her skirts floating in a pond and, and her man's pants tugged on and her hair up. And she kind of fascinated me, but I had no idea I would ever come back to her. And even in that book, before long, I ended up writing a story about her as, as a quite young woman just out of high school, training to be a teacher and going off to uh, take a marine biology summer course before she goes to her first teaching job. And then um, that story is called The Island. She came so fully to life then in her friendship with Daphne that then she just assumed a, a sort of huge role in my mental space. And I knew I would write more about her. Well, she's such a wonderful character, and I, and I thought m many times that I would I would read much more of her, and so I'm, perhaps I'm lucky, and and that you'll feel a compulsion to return <laughs> to her later on. I I wonder why uh, interlinked stories rather than a novel. Uh, again, I, I if I knew the answer to that, maybe I'd stop writing because I would understand what I do. Uh, I don't have much. C control over where my stories come from, and I don't have a uh, much larger sense of why they involve the people they do. They just pop up that way. Um, I, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I wish I had some great answer, but once no, that I is learned... that is a that is a great answer in a way because I feel like, you know, some sometimes we think of uh, of writing as this entirely deliberate, mapped out thing, and I think sometimes it's very nice to think of it as like artistic inspiration that that drives you. Yeah, I, I like to push back a little against that mapped out thing. Um, I mean, I do know writers who work like that, who plot things out in advance and make a lot of outlines and drive toward an end that they already foresee and, you know, bless them. But that's not how I work. It's never been how I work. And when I was a young writer and I'd hear people talking about how they made books, it always made me feel like, well, I can't be a writer. I just, I don't do that. I don't, don't even have any idea how to do that. But if I've learned anything in, you know, 30 or 35 years of doing this, it's that I need to trust whatever is the thing in me that produces these characters and these impulses and these moves towards story. It doesn't matter that I don't consciously understand it and that I can't control it to a certain extent and that I can't explain it to you. It, it's sort of um, some painter once said, I'm a bird, not an ornithologist. Hmm. And that really resonates with me. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, I do too. I wish I could remember who said that. but. You know, I know that some part of me knows what I'm doing. And I also know that while it's embarrassing sometimes not to be able to explain it, it just is what it is. And I'm very lucky to have it. And that's the important part of it. Um, explaining how we make our work and what our work means anyway that comes after making the work. And sort of it's not our job. It's our readers' jobs to make from it what they will. 
our job is just to make the stuff. And at this point, that's just what I try to do. I try to make it as good as I can and to follow where it's leading me. And, you know, I do have control of my craft, which is to say, once some part of me has produced the characters and what's going on, the more linear conscious part of me can say, oh no, this should start here, not there. It should end here, not there. It should be this point of view, not that point of view. So that part's running all the time, but it's not what produces a story. It's what produces um, a better story, a readable story, a story you might be able to follow. Mm -hmm. Were I to attempt to describe your style, I would point to your nearly unrivaled ability to place the reader in a historical period without really needing to do much naming of that period. You're able to submerge us in the objects, the affect, and most importantly, the language of the period. How do you set out to fully grasp a historical moment and, and put it to the page? Um, thank you for that. First of all, that's something I work very hard toward. And, and if it affects you that way, I'm so grateful. Um, I do have control over that part. That's a conscious part. Um, I really don't like historical fiction that spends a great deal of expository time mm -hmm. sort of setting up the scene and explaining what's going on in the background. Um, I like to make it feel for the readers that they're in that place with the character. And so my work, both researching and then editing and doing multiple drafts is to, in a sense, weed out all that I've worked so hard to learn and leave nothing there but what the character could know of her time and her place and her situation. Um, and she can't know what we know looking back. She doesn't know how the Battle of Chancellorsville turned out or you know, what happened to arguments over Darwin. She's living in her moment as we're living in ours. And um, so I, generally put a great deal of that stuff in. And then in the end, I take it all out, except this kind of distillate of uh, what, it, what it feels like and what it looks like to the important characters. You are famous for your women scientists. In natural history, we get Henrietta, but also the wonderful Rose Marburg, professional scientist from Ship Fever, who is a descendant of Henrietta. Yeah. Your characters find science out of an innate drive to know something more about their world and their place in it. Why do you like to imagine the lives of women scientists? I think in part because I thought I was going to be one. I wanted to be one. Um, I was a biology major in college and um, went extremely briefly to graduate school in zoology. And I'm married to someone who was a scientist for 30 years, and a lot of our friends were scientists. Um, so the life really interests me. What I didn't understand as a young woman was that I wasn't actually interested in doing science. I was interested in scientists and their obsession <laughs> with it. So I, I was very lucky in having a kind of secretive perch to watch the lives of scientists unfold without being one myself. Um, I would have liked to have been one, but my mind doesn't work that way. Mm. As a writer, you have an unwavering commitment to describing the relationship between our everyday lives and the natural world around us. This stands in contrast to the separation that many people have between the natural world and the technological everyday. Can you talk about your dedication to describing human interactions with nature? Um, sh sure. That doesn't feel exactly like a 
again, like a chosen thing or a dedication. It just feels like my life. Um, I'm really interested in not just what, go, not so much what goes on inside us, although of course I'm interested in that, but in that intersection between us and the world, I don't think of us as solitary um, beings existing with no connection to the natural world. I think we're half people when we exist in that state. So for me, it's really important to always bring my characters out into the world and let people see how they perceive the world. You learn a great deal about a character, about a person by watching what they're interested in, learning what they like, not what they say they like, but taking a walk with someone and seeing how they respond to the lichen and the birds and the tracks, what interests them, what catches their eye. Um, that's how we live. We're meant to be out in the world, I think. So I try to let my characters reflect that. I, I agree, and at the same time, find it hard myself to to remember to get out into the world, and that's one of the things these stories really spark in me is a desire to to return to what feels like a, a truly natural place for us to be, and that's out amongst the things of nature. It's so um, interesting. What what do you look at when you go outside, even when you walk between one building and another? Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that often I feel so busy that I barely observe, which feels like oh, losing, interesting. which feels like losing out on such a rich part of, of life. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I, I feel like that's the truth. No, you shouldn't be embarrassed. I mean, a lot of us live that way, but that is really interesting to me. Um, when, when I'm in a city, which is not very often because I'm not happy there, um, I, it's so easy for me to see how you can feel like that in a completely built environment. But at the same time, I always find if I can just kind of reel my attention back for even a minute and look around, it's like, oh, there's trees, there's birds nesting, there's things crawling up the trunk, there's daffodils coming up, there's a sky, there's clouds, there's movement, there's bugs on the sidewalk. And then I, I feel like a human being again, but I totally get how you can lose that um, working as hard as many people work, but the, you, should the, you should get out more. I should. You're <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, the beautiful, uh, one of the many beautiful things for me in reading about these things is the reminder that actually I live in a place that that might as well be where your your stories take place in Ithaca, New York. It's beautiful, and it and you describe Central New York so wonderfully, and you know are often lakeside. Uh, what is what's your particular love for that area and its ecosystems? You know, it's mostly just that it's what I've known for a long time. Uh, I grew up on Cape Cod and lived in Massachusetts for a while, but. Uh, I lived in Rochester a lot for a long time and would sometimes visit Ithaca where you are. And we also um, spent time around the Finger Lakes, around Cuca Lake, which is the kind of non-fictional version of Crooked Lake. Um, mm. We had a tiny, tiny wooden sailboat that we would try to sail on that lake. Um, it sank the first time we sailed it. It was so old and so dried out. The planks wouldn't even hold oh. together. But, um, <laughs> So we launched it from the shores of the lake there and we, you know, we took the trailer out and the boat just sank to the bottom. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I just spent a lot of time outside there. And, and when I was younger, we would drive from there up to the Adirondacks where I live now and um, to hike and climb and, 
and camp and sometimes even climb in the, in the winter. And so I know these mountains pretty well. I, you know, I think like most writers, um, there's some place in the world that you know very well or have the potential to know very well. And uh, why not draw on it? I could set these stories anywhere, but if I set them in Nebraska, I would have to go out and learn Nebraska in the same way that I know here. And that would be a pleasure, but it would take me a long time. This is just where, where my roots are. And so I know the trees and I know the birds and I know the seasons, which is really important. The, in the story, Henrietta and her moths, you give us a window into the joys of teaching scientific observation. I was especially struck by this story because we live in a time now where the, the work of teaching is incredibly degraded by the society and culture around our, our teachers. Did you have that in mind at all as you were thinking about this? And, and how do you view the, the work of, of teachers? Um, you know, I did have that in mind, and that's a really interesting point you bring up. Um, I had some wonderful teachers when I was young, and I also taught for a long time, um, both graduate students and then uh, for 15 years undergraduate students. And just in that brief space of time, I saw how much uh, teaching went from something that you could still view idealistically and still feel you were really passing an important part of life along to something that was under assault from every direction. Um, and it just breaks my heart. Teaching is a kind of inherent human thing, whether you're teaching your own children or someone else's children. We want to pass along um, what we know. We want to give those gifts to someone else. And Sometimes it seems like everything now conspires to keep us from doing that. And, um, Henrietta, in her time and in her place, despite the things she's up against, she still has that space for a few hours a week to teach her young students something that um, is a happiness to her and a happiness to them. So that was really important to me. That's beautifully said. I, I'm, I'm struck in, in this collection, but also in many of your works, by the fact that small personal traumas can have a deep and profound impact on generations of a family, almost like mitochondria passed down from mother to daughter. Hmm. How might you describe how the personal becomes familial in these, in these stories? Um. That is such a thoughtful and wonderful question. And that's an intuitive choice or a, it has something to do with the way I actually view the world. I don't, I don't try to bring that out consciously in the stories. It just seems to be the way the stories unfold, which suggests something in me believes that very deeply, but I, I can't explain it. And one a, a sort of connected question for me is that I think of the families in your stories as ecosystems, because I think you lead me there. Um, do we miss something integral about life on the planet when we think of ourselves as humankind as fundamentally different from the processes of life going on around us and in non-human form? And is that is thinking of ourselves as an ecosystem like those around us, is, is that a helpful way to kind of join those things that we sometimes separate? Yeah, I, I think that really is helpful. I mean, to think of us as somehow separate from everything else in the world and different from everything else in the world 
is to give up most of our lives. We're, we're not, we're creatures like all the other creatures. We're organized a little differently, but we're not separate, we're not isolated. Um, we're busy destroying almost everything else around us and that's not such a good thing. Um, yeah, our, I mean, famously, our bodies are ecosystems. People have been writing about this for a long time, how we contain um, biota, we contain communities within us, everything's working with everything else, and then we in turn are connected to the things outside our skin. So if that's useful for you as a reader to think of um, that intersection of human ecosystem and other ecosystem, then that's that's useful, I guess. There are some wonderful moments in the opening uh, story, Wonders of the Shore, in which the social scene into which Henrietta and her friend Daphne are seeking access is paralleled by descriptions of the social life of the planet often teeming just beneath the surface or riving along the shoreline of a lake or ocean. Do you think of the natural world as having a social life into which we might involve ourselves? Oh, what a great question. Um, you know, I don't know that much biology anymore, but I feel sure that the that it does have a social life. Of course it has a social life. I mean, all these creatures are um, communing with each other in some way. We just don't have access usually to how they do it. But um, we know there's whale social lives. We know there's bird social lives. I mean, we know of some of those things. Um, there's social lives of bats. There's social lives of insects. Do they talk outside their species? I don't know. Do we understand? Um, can we ever understand how their social lives work? I don't know that either, but I, I'm sure it's there. Yes, and it seems in in your stories you are able to to describe it even without sort of uh, uh, allowing us an intimate, you know, vision of it. It's it there's like something roiling underneath the surface of you know that that scene where where Henrietta and Daphne are at that hotel party. Uh, we get the sense from texts that Henrietta is thinking about and reading that there's something happening underneath it all. I guess that's one way I might describe some of the stories in this collection is that even when you're not talking about nature, nature is undergirding what's happening. Well, um, I would love it if that were true. Thank you for that. That's, um, I feel all that roiling too. I love that word. Um, and, and that is a large part of what I'm trying to convey. I think sometimes when you describe that stuff linearly and consciously and at great length, um, it doesn't really mean anything to readers. They just skip those pages. But if you can erase all that from the surface, and still allow it to roil underneath, and the reader can feel some of that, as maybe you felt some of that. And we learn things differently through feeling than we do intellectually. Um, and that's what I'm always trying to get at, not to, not to tell you about something, not to make you learn something, or not to convey a bunch of information, either historical or biological but somehow to find the settings and the movements and the characters that will make you feel that roiling. Um, Cause then you'll take that away maybe. That's, that's lovely. I, I mentioned in the introduction that 
I, I feel like a lot of writers now either see themselves or are grouped under this sort of heading of eco-fiction. Yeah. And, and you've been sort of writing something like that for a long time. Do you see the, the new wave of sort of eco-fiction writers as something that may change the, the relationship between writing and how we view our destruction of the natural world around us? And, and is there hope for you in that, that we may change our attitudes and our relationships to the natural world? Well, sure, I, I hope so. And, um, you know, I love that people are working in that field now that there's so many younger people doing this sort of thing. A lot of them women, interestingly. Um, and, you know, will it make people feel more deeply about what's going on around them? I think it will. And that that's a helpful thing because, you know, people read um, information about what we're doing to the world all the time. And it doesn't always move us to action or to think about what we're doing. Maybe poems and stories and novels that make us feel that connection more deeply um, will move people in, in a new way. That would be wonderful. Yes, we can only hope. Before I let you go, I would love to know if you have any books that you've been loving recently or anything that you'd like to recommend to listeners of the show. Um, sure. Um, I'm reading now, later than everybody else, a wonderful book called The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf, which is about the naturalist Humboldt. Um, it's a very, very nice work of sort of history and um, biological history, exploration history. It's terrific. And I recently finished Ed Young's The Immense World, which just I thought was fabulous and taught me so much. For reasons that I'm not sure I understand, I'm rereading A.S. Byatt's The Children's Book. I don't know if mm. you know that or not. I haven't read that, but I, I know the title. Yeah, it's, it's very long, but it's very, very interesting. Um, there's something about really long novels. They aren't always very popular anymore, but you can do things in that form that you can't do in any other way. Um, just sitting with a group of characters, page after page, year after year, you feel time passing and you feel change in character in a way you can't feel any other way. It's like reading War and Peace. Um, and her, you know, it's, it is a very long book and um, many digressions and many comments about history and movement. But along with that, there's also this group of people we meet as children and watch evolve into adults and watch and feel their consciousnesses change that I really uh, admire that. It really interests me. I had a wonderful conversation with Alice Elliot Dark about that very thing, about the fact that longer novels, which are sort of out of fashion, sadly, mm -hmm. allow you just literally more time with them. It takes a longer time to read them, and therefore you have, a, um, in some ways, a more profound relationship to them. Yeah, I would really agree with that. Um, I'm so looking forward to reading her book. I'm uh, about to go hear her read on Saturday, I think, in Brattleboro. Yeah, yeah, it's like living with someone for a long time. It is living with someone for a long time. You know them in a way you can't know through a more supple and sinuous and elusive approach. There's advantages to both, but she, she's perfectly right about that. You do get to know them just through duration. It's a wonderful thing. 
Well, I would put money on your loving fellowship point, and and I'm sure that the two of you would have much to talk about. But these are uh, these are wonderful recommendations, which I will link to on our website. But it was really such a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. You're such a good reader. I feel like you understand my work a good deal better than I do. I, I think you do. <laughs> That's really illuminating for me. It's um. You know, it's one of the great surprises of being a writer, occasionally talking to other people is you teach me back my own work. I don't know what's going on half the time. And then you say certain things. And I think, well, that's interesting that he read it that way. Maybe that was what was going on. So thank you for that. Well, I'm I'm deeply flattered and, and thank you. And I'll look forward to, to hopefully seeing Henrietta and her family in, in other works soon. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Well, that's all from me for now. My enormous thanks to the brilliant Andrea Barrett, to whom I am indebted for years of joy in reading her work. Buying her latest, Natural History, is a must. You'll find links to do just that, as well as purchasing all of Andrea's recommended books at burnedbybooks.com. Stay tuned next week for my interview with National Book Award finalist Tess Gunty. Until then... This has been Burned by Books. <laughs>